Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Figlioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey, everybody, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. I'm here with our host, Keith Figlioli of LRV Health. Keith Figlioli, how are we today? We're good. We're like three days away from a vacation. So, you know, just wrapping up a bunch of stuff and finishing up the intro to a podcast and hopefully be on my way. We are also a few days away from a vacation. So I'm in a similar boat. We are burning the candle at both ends. <laughs> we talked about the, the need for a sabbatical, I think, in the last podcast, and it's definitely it's definitely here. So so that's why these podcasts are so great, because those folks who are traveling afar and need something to listen to can listen to your conversation with uh, John Halamka, the president of the Mayo Clinic platform. I know that you know John from Boston, from elsewhere, but tell our listeners about John. Yeah, I've known John for about 20, almost my entire career in healthcare which is interesting, maybe because we're both local, but also we've had a lot of intersection points in our careers. John, for a long time, was the CIO here at Beth Israel Health System. And then I knew him a lot from a policy work in DC. So he was the head of the policy committee for a long period of time, ONC's policy committee, and then eventually ended up over at Mayo running their new platform business, which he gets into a lot of detail. But I wanted to bring John on to really talk about the state of AI and ML, so artificial intelligence and machine learning in the healthcare space. We, we have gotten a lot of feedback in our network recently just to sort of get a pull up on that. And where are we? What's going on? And mm-hmm. how real is it? And the, the age old debate of, you know, is it going to be taking over jobs or is it going to really be about augmentation of jobs? And, and John's really, you know, become quite the expert in this space, given a lot of work that he's done recently. So I thought, you know, he'd be a great person to sort of shed some light on this topic. And I think it's highly relevant to a lot of people that listen to this, getting his kind of point of view. What was the principal takeaway? What, what should people listen for in this episode? Or a takeaway, I mean, maybe not the principal one, but a major. I thing. think the, the preamble, or at least the preamble we started with was to just give people an appreciation for who John is. I mean, mm-hmm. John's been out there and a lot of people know him, but man, he has done a lot of things in his career on both the intersection of what I call healthcare IT implementation and healthcare IT policy, which is invaluable at the detail level. And he knows the details better than most. But the key takeaway in all of this, and I think where we wanted to go with it was, you know, what's going to happen here is AI and ML becomes a bit more omnipresent across the various infrastructure layers of healthcare. You know, we all know about bias. We all know about some of the issues with these types of technologies. It's still very early in the life cycle of these technologies. Who's going to govern that? And is policy a vector that's needed here? And I thought what was so interesting about the discussion was that, you know, we got to it towards the end of it was, you know, Early on, we started talking about, is there a need still for government regulations post-MU and all the stuff that proliferate in digital health that came mm-hmm. off the base of, of the investment in MU, meaningful use. But now what? What does the government do? Does the government need to do anything? And then John got into this whole thing about guardrails for AI and ML. And how do you think about quality and safety when that's in play? And you know who else better than the government to start thinking about that? I guess I hadn't really thought about it in that much detail until he brought it up, but it makes all the sense in the world to me, which is at some point in time, we're going to get past a tipping point with these types of technologies in our care delivery, let alone our overall ecosystem, 
that someone's going to have to be paying attention to this and someone's going to have to be putting guardrails in place because we're still so nascent that a lot of things can get out of hand pretty quick. Interesting. Oh, that's, that's going to be something people should definitely pay attention to. I'm curious as a, as a VC, when you're looking at companies, how important is it for them to have AI and ML as part of their, their presentation or their, their pitch? If it's, I assume it has to be a meaningful part, but how are you looking at that? Is it necessary to have that, have that as part of your pitch? Or are you only interested in seeing it if it really has some meat to it? I think it's feels implied in everybody that we talk to and everything yeah. we think about. It, it does not feel like a company. So in the early days, a lot of people were pitching AI and ML as companies. Hmm. And it's really just part of the technology layer and the evolution of the technology layer. So I think it's almost assumed in most of our discussions with people. When people start talking about it as a lion's share of what their value prop is. Mm. I think that's where we end up going a lot deeper and understanding really what that is. And do they really have something? Because a lot of times I'm still a bit of a skeptic here for, for the time being, which is there's still a ton of if-then statements out there that are all hard-coded rules that you know, a lot of people think they're doing AI and ML and they're really not. But to us as investors, I think it's really about, it's a piece of sort of the value prop. It's not the value. Understood. Great. This will clearly be an important conversation for folks to listen to and understand where we're, we're headed. And is there a meaningful conversation about these guardrails or is this something that needs to happen as opposed to is happening? I think it sounds like some things are going on behind closed doors, which a lot of times happens in our government, but it definitely sounds like people are starting to pay attention to this in the government. And there's a growing group behind the scenes starting to think about how do we start thinking about the guardrails? How do we start introducing potential policy levers downstream when it's appropriate? Closed doors. That's a great tease for the podcast. So let's not keep people waiting. Let's listen to your conversation with John Halamka, president of the Mayo Clinic Platform. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. I have a good friend, and I do mean a good friend that I've had for many moons. We could almost say decades now, John, but I have Dr. John Halamka with us, and he is now the president of the Mayo Clinic Platform business. And John, we could not be more excited to have you on. Well, and thrilled to be here. What an important discussion you and I are going to have because you and I are charged with telling everyone where the future is going to be. So go for it. <laughs> and we need to figure that out because as, as both of us were just talking about in the preamble before we started recording, somehow it's summer, but somehow our calendars are already booked. And so it feels like our summers are, are, are going to be very busy, but let's, let's get into it. Let's talk about sort of, you know, I know you well, a lot of people know you very well, and not just in this country, but around the globe for a lot of stuff that you've done in healthcare IT over the years, but like, just give the people that maybe don't know that listen in sort of like quick and dirty on your background and how you sort of got to where you got most recently with Mayo, but, but so many other things before that, but I would love to just sort of understand the background. Well, so let me start with, have you read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers? Yes. So I was born in that period of time described in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. So what does that mean? It means that as I grew up in the 60s, I was there for you know the moon launch and the evolution of technology in the strangest way. My parents were becoming lawyers in Southern California, and I was a latchkey child in L.A., and I rode my bike to Raytheon, to Hughes Aircraft, to Aerojet, and pulled integrated circuits and manuals from their garbage cans when I was 10. 
Now, back that then, ex- there was that explains a lot. <laughs> there you go. But so back then, there was no security at all on any of this stuff. And so I taught myself analog and digital logic, early microprocessors, machine code assembly, and then high-level languages like Fortran and COBOL. Remember those? Yep. And I did all this in the early 70s. So what did that mean? It meant by the time I was, say, you know, 12, I had my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of competency because of dumpster diving in Los Angeles. So when I was 14, I started developing uh, healthcare-related IT systems. In fact, I sold my first one to UCLA. And what this was was real-time fast Fourier transforms of brainstem audio evoke uh, potentials doing signal-to-noise reduction by taking large numbers of samples very fast and transforming them. Now, here's the sad thing. I created this when I was 14. When I came back to UCLA as an emergency medicine resident, you know, nearly 20 years later, it was still in production. (laughs) So I tell you this story because I have had literally like 50 years of experience of working in the intersection of technology and healthcare in a whole lot of ways, both at the writing hard, you know, software creating hardware, but also at the policy level. I served at Harvard for 25 years, now at Mayo since 2020. Right. And so you've had, I think what's most interesting, not only just about the coding and the teaching is also being, to your point, a doctor, also having the intersection of what I've always enjoyed most about your commentary over the years is it's always grounded in reality of clinical workflow and what's there and what's not there, where a lot of people are talking tech. You're talking, hey, look, this is how this fits into this. And when you step back and I think about, you know, you've had 20, you've had many moons, but 25 plus years of kind of thinking about policy too and HIT strategy. You know, when you step back and you think about all the different roles that you've had, you know, from not only your academic credentials at Harvard, but also at the BI, you know, being the CIO and being part of ONC and figuring out meaningful use. What's the biggest wins and the biggest regrets when you like reflect on all that? This is going to be a very quizzical answer, which is if you've studied history, you know that Winston Churchill said Americans will always do the right thing after they've tried everything else. (laughs) And so we got to API-based fire exchange, JavaScript object notation, stateless using restful transactions of healthcare data place to place, but only after we tried everything else first. And that was okay, to be honest, right? So as you point out in my history, charged with Health Information Technology Standards Panel and Standards Committee, Bush administration, Obama administration, we had to figure out as a society how we were going to deal with vocabulary, content, and transport standards. And we tried all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Everything from XML to sort of the digital equivalent of smoke signals and Morse code. And what we recognized over those 20 years of trying is they didn't work totally well. Very easy to generate XML, impossible to parse it. You know, very challenging to use proprietary transport mechanisms. Okay, we are actually at a really good place right now of being able to create an ecosystem across government, academia, and industry of information exchange 
it just took a somewhat circuitous road to get here. Mm-hmm. And you, I assume you think, because I, I know you well enough, that like we had to go through that to get here. Like we almost had to take the industry to a highly regulatory state. We almost, you know, we had to spend the 30 plus billion on meaningful use to arrive kind of, and we're not done, but to at least arrive where we are now, like trying to insert or change correction because somebody thought it was not right to go be that prescriptive on some of those regs back in MU. Is that how you felt back then? I mean, you were like in the middle of all that. I mean, you're right. So what we had in this country was a market failure. Right. And that is the sort of notion of, oh, you know, what we'll do. We'll create electronic health records. People will just use them. It'll all be wonderful. Oh, by the way, they'll share data out of the goodness of their heart. (laughs) And in fact, we tried. Right. There was a time. I mean, Dave Brailler was brilliant in his creating certified EHRs and creating mechanisms for standards and all the rest. But the market didn't move. And so, in effect, it required the push of meaningful use for all that meaningful use, yes, caused strain, was imperfect, had unintended consequences, maybe even created administrative burden and burnout. It moved the industry. I don't think anyone in 2022 would argue, oh, actually, we are now a digitized industry. And we look at the number of startups around us that are doing interesting things. This was all facilitated by these events of the last 20 years. And I think that's, you know, for a lot of people that are new in the industry, in these startups, I think that's missed sometimes, which is, you know, I have a, looking back on it now, it feels like regardless of the imperfect nature of it, we had to go through it. And so in this, in this period, how do you think about sort of government-led regulation versus market innovation today? And, you know, is there more to be done at the government level or are we finally in a place that the market can can kind of take it from here? So I am a strong believer in public-private partnerships. And that is there are some things that industry can do extraordinarily well and other things where government can provide us guidelines and guardrails, right? So uh, I'll use this example. So Keith, you know, I've developed this amazing algorithm Uh, because I'm a Minnesota-based employee. It uses 10 million Scandinavian Lutherans. And we're going to now run it in Boston. You'll love it. Well, of course, the question is, will it be fair? Will it be useful? Do we know? How do we measure that? So wouldn't you like the government to tell us, oh, if you are going to distribute a machine learning algorithm and use it to make clinical decision-making, oh, you need to publish certain performance characteristics. Transparency and testability are important. And, oh, maybe you'll have some FDA regulation, 510K, de novo, even certification or approval for certain kinds of things. So, So government is great. I mean, I actually think government can be an enabler for certain kinds of emerging technologies to ensure we do no harm, but we can do so without stifling innovation. I think that's a really interesting point, which is could we be on the upslope again because of some of the new technologies like you're suggesting AI, ML, et cetera, coming into the market more mainstream rather than just some science projects where we're gonna have to need regulation again? Um, Because I don't think- heavy-handed regulation. I mean, risk-based 
I mean, imagine this. I, and again, Keith, I'm going to make this up because you're a thin and fit person. <laughs> but if, if, if I say, oh, you know what? I have an app that suggests you eat less and exercise more. Should that be FDA regulated? You know, not so much. Um, if I have an app that actually tells you, oh, you look pale today, it must be stomach cancer. Should that be regulated? Of course. <laughs> That's, I mean, it, it, so let's dive, let's dive there uh, because we're going there, which is now you're at Mayo and I'm not so sure we'll come right back into some of the stuff you're talking about, but let's start with sort of the context I'm not so sure many people understand this idea of a platform business at Mayo. I mean, what what in essence was kind of told to you when 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 you were yeah taken you know recruited for the job? Okay, so this is going to be a strange example for your listeners, but hear me out. You know that I live at Unity Farm Sanctuary, the largest animal sanctuary in New England, and we're an all John Deere shop. You know, you got to pick John Deere, or Kubota, or Holland, or you know something. Well, five years ago, John Deere decided to, to shift from being a pipeline business to being a platform business. Well, what does that mean? A pipeline business is I buy steel, rubber, and green paint, and I create a tractor that I sell, and I'm done. That's a pipeline. A platform business is, well, what if I instrument every tractor with a dozen different sensors. And every time that tractor is driven, it's providing real-time telemetry back to a central cloud store. And oh, I have hundreds of partners looking at that cloud store to do everything from supply chain management, how many trucks do we need in Iowa next week, to what's the price of soybeans on a commodity market a month from now, right? It's financial services, it's logistics, it's science. Well, every time you sell a tractor, you actually are selling a telemetry production system that's bringing more value to that central data store. So the way Mayo thought about this is, could we imagine a future where every byte of data of the past, de-identified, privacy protected, ethically used, created new cures, new care pathways, you know, new opportunities for innovation in the future. Oh, you need a platform for that, just like John Deere needed a platform to turn tractors into an ecosystem of innovation. And should should we think about Mayo differently then? So Mayo has always been on the forefront of a lot of sort of trends. You know, so is Mayo more than a health system today? So think of it this way. In some of my previous employers, to build collaboration was hard. To say, oh, I have this young company and it has everything uh, that it needs, great people, great ideas. It just has no corpus of data to test its products on. It has no clinical experts to work with. Well, what if we made it so that it was so trivially simple that one week after bringing in a organization you wanted to mentor, you could bring their products into 10 million de-identified records and test them out. You could bring 7,000 clinical experts to the problem. So I guess the way to think about Mayo is it is global in scale and extraordinarily interested in collaboration, joint venture, and various kinds of partnerships. 
in creating innovation at extraordinarily fast pace. And is there unique attributes there, let's say other large healthcare systems or large healthcare payers couldn't replicate? Or is this is this the new normal? So what I mean by that is, you know, we have a point of view of saying that, you know, we're in the middle of re-envisioning what a provider is, we're in the middle of re-envisioning a payer, we're re-envisioning sort of the combination of those two things. Is this what that is? You know, Mayo is interpretation for it, or is Mayo got a set of special secret sauce that only they can kind of be doing this? Or are we going to see, you know, Humana wants to be a healthcare company. That's basically a healthcare platform company. Providence is trying to reach out above and beyond what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just curious, or is this more of a Mayo thing? You raised the most important point of our discussion. So I am a 60-year-old person. And what do I want to do for the next 30 years? Because remember, I've been a vegan for 25 years, so I got at least like 30 years in an executive role. (laughs) I want to make a difference. I want to leave those ideas, whether they're technological or regulatory or cultural behind, so those that I mentor can take healthcare to a new state. So Mayo's notion is really to be a catalyst and a facilitator to work across organizations and government, academia, and industry globally to move some of these agendas forward. So to your point, of course, other organizations have rich data sets, but have they figured out how to de-identify, keep those data sets private and ethically used to create cures and new discoveries in the future, or could Mayo help them in doing that? So I think you're exactly correct. This is not about Mayo, Mayo data, Mayo patients. It's about being a global industry influencer to help others do this right. And the interesting part, which I think some people know, maybe not everybody, but the amount of research activities that goes on at a place like Mayo is just enormous. And the amount of new therapeutics, the amount of new procedures, the amount of new care pathways, like... It's almost like you're taking that uber experimentation process and trying to put that on steroids across the entire footprint through the use of data is is the way I think about it. There are 73,000 employees. Right. And the 2030 bold forward plan at Mayo, it's called Cure Connect Transform. And really the transform piece is can Mayo... Of course, it will continue to be a wonderful place where people come for empathetic care and tertiary referrals and that kind of thing. But can it be transformative to healthcare globally through the use of technology components and being an exemplar of how to do this right? So you're, you're exactly right that, that Mayo, I'll, I'll just describe it to people as I find a new buried treasure every day in terms of clinical expertise, novel curated data sets or registries or genomic analysis or even social determinants of health and equity. Mayo is leading the the country in a whole variety of novel approaches. And that's the the interesting part about, and then I'll move into more of the AI ML stuff that we, we dropped for a few minutes. That's the most fascinating part I find about the cultural attributes of places like Mayo, where end of the day, you're still doing clinical delivery, just like any other health system is around this country. But the kernel of the culture from the get-go of a place like Mayo is a lot different than a lot of these other places. But almost every organization at the health system level, in my opinion, across this country could be doing this concert of 
iterative learning or this learning healthcare system idea, but why are they not? Like, why are they not grabbing on to like, you know, you've had some experiences in your past life where maybe it wasn't as forward leaning or wasn't pushing the needle to try to transform, but the only way through is transformation for at least in this country, let alone globally, what we got to do from a change of a healthcare outcomes, let alone costs. Of course, this is a podcast, so folks can't see images. <laughs> but at Mayo, when you join the organization, you're handed a book. And that book is that little book of Mayo values. And what you find, I have never worked in a place that is so values driven. And that is, you could be, it could be midnight. And you could be, you could walk up to a janitor and say, well, so what are the Mayo Clinic values? And that janitor would be able to enumerate them for you. The patient always comes first. So what does that mean? It means every time a decision is made, it isn't made on the, oh, what's convenient for me or what is easy or what is going to give us that next press release. It's, well, what would the patient want? <laughs> Uh, and so that's where I could uh, say that as we develop these platform technologies, as we develop ethical, uh, unbiased use of AI, it's everyone focusing on that singular goal of making the patient experience better. Yep. And let's go there now, because that's the bulk of, of sort of the second half of our discussion, which is really, you know, you've been in the middle of sort of big data enterprises, the use of data differently thinking about AI and ML in different ways and being on the, the front end of that, where are we right now with AI and ML in healthcare? I mean, is it, some people want to call it the panacea. Others are like, yeah, we're nowhere. You know, it's still early innings. I mean, how do you think about sort of the game of deployment of AI and ML across healthcare and where do we go from here? Right. So think of ML as math, not magic, yeah. right? And so here's the issue. So I went to medical school in the 80s. You know, a few things have changed since then. <laughs> the problem is there, I'm an emergency physician and there are 800 articles published in my field every day. You know, I'm a little behind on my reading. <laughs> and so this problem is this, no human in 2022 is able to understand the multimodal inputs and the literature in a way that just gives us probability. Right, it's just statistics, nothing more than that. So let me give you a very funny example. So do you know that I was in Wuhan, China in December of 2019? Really? <laughs> oh, and by the way, in January, I developed a cough. Now, it turns out it wasn't COVID, it's all, it's all good. But point being is, can you imagine humans being able to understand situational awareness from billions of data points around the world purely to make a statistical decision. It's beyond our human brain's capacity. You know, I tell my wife, you know, I can keep about five things in my head simultaneously. I don't know if you've looked at Google's latest language model. It has 540 billion inputs. <laughs> it actually transcends any human spoken language. In fact, it reduces every concept in any language spoken globally to math and then interprets based on math. So I tell you this again, it's math, not magic, but it's helping us take huge amounts of multimodal data and turn it into wisdom that augments our human decision making. And I think that's the key word, right? Augment, because some people, 
I think still subscribe to this idea that, you know, we're taking people out or this is, you know, getting into the Borgs. And I think your point about augmentation is critical for people to understand. I mean, when I look at a lot of the AIML stuff that, that we even look at over the years, I always joke, we're still stuck in if then statements. Like this is not learning models. This is like somebody hard coding a lot of this math, to your point, not magic. And we still have a long way to go to sort of continue to evolve these models in a more autonomous way. So uh, I don't know if you've studied AI explainability. Well, this notion of, oh, I have this extraordinarily complicated set of inputs, an extraordinary number of nodes. Can I explain why the output is what it is? Not so much, yeah. right? And so the problem, of course, is that this technique, which is great, enables us to provide not closed loop decision making. Go order this test, go reset this parameter. But to say, oh, I actually have taken all these inputs. And you know what? You might consider this diagnosis. You might consider that test. You might consider that the patient will have this complication. Mayo has about 60 algorithms it's produced over the last two years, some through FDA certification. We had a breakthrough designation two weeks ago on our pulmonary hypertension algorithm. And all of those are about to, you know, humans aren't able to look at hundreds to thousands of data points and infer, whereas physics and math on a machine learning platform can. And that's really all it is. So when you step back and think about who, who's sort of leading right now at the intersection of AI, ML, and healthcare, not just, you know, the pure math side of it, you know, the factories that are Google, Microsoft, and others. Who do you sort of value when you go have discussions with folks and, and respect their opinion or go and say, what's, what's the leading edge of this stuff right now? So here's a fast, of course, you know, I would say Mayo. You got to say that. (laughs) but, but, But more than that, I think we have to be nuanced. Yeah. Would you agree, because you do what you do, that there are some who are experts in CT or MRI? There are other experts in digital pathology. There are others that are expert in EEG analysis for seizures, right? So what I am seeing in the industry is that these models depend on highly curated multimodal data. And I mean, Mayo has an accelerator. And what we're seeing is sometimes these companies which are wonderful, right? They come in with bold ideas, but they don't have access to the multimodal data at scale. We work with them on de-identified multimodal data, and then they produce a model in a narrow, narrow niche. You know, I am going to predict that you're going to have a seizure 30 minutes from now. I'm going to predict that two years from now, you're going to have a fib. You know, I'm going to predict that you're going to have a not you, Keith, but I mean you in a sort of general sense, a menopausal hot flash in two hours, right? And so I'm seeing an amazing array of startup activity that is creating models for a niche purpose on multimodal data. And do you think that's where this ends up at scale, which is it follows the specialty pathways of medicine? Where because it's so nuanced to your point, because there's so much stuff we, you know, the, the, the human body is so complex and biology is so complex that we're probably not going to have true platform players unless they aggregate this stuff through MA. We're going to have a lot of different players that are very deep in certain specialties. 
Well, so here's what I believe. You have to create this virtuous ecosystem of people who are going to have a whole variety of models. And you're going to have to create a mechanism for models and data to come together in a not IP disclosing, not privacy disclosing way. So the platform players will be those that provide tools and infrastructure. But there's going to be a huge number of model providers. Yeah. And there's no notion that there's going to be one model to fit all purposes. And do you think anything dramatically changes 10 years from now? Or it's just we get to scale and we get to see this a bit more omnipresent across the ecosystem? So here's what we'll I mean, 10 years. God only knows. We'll all be in the metaverse 10 years from now. Who knows? <laughs> but, but look what's happened over the course of the last couple of years. During COVID, all of us got virtual care right? That was a cultural change. So that notion that people are wearing sensors, willing to contribute data, willing to work at a distance with people combining their phenotype, genotype, and exposome, right? The last three years has totally changed the cultural willingness to do that. So, and then we have regulatory change, the information blocking rule, right? Interoperability rule, making it easier for data to flow with less friction. So, you know, I guess if I were to predict 10 years out, it's just gonna be a whole lot easier for you to navigate your healthcare and that for your family or loved ones because of data liquidity and a huge ecosystem of players that will help you do it. But here's gonna be our challenge. No one wakes up in the provider or patient world saying, you know what I need? I need an algorithm, yeah, right? It doesn't happen. So here's what we're gonna to have to figure out. For a problem to be solved or a question to be answered, what metadata surrounds a startup company or its algorithm so that it, you know, it just automatically appears when I need it? So the provider and the patient don't think about that. But oh, you know, you are a 60-year-old person living in New England and you just developed a cough. This is the thing that will make you, you know, get you back to wellness. And it could be from any one of the startups that you oversee. And that should happen more or less automatically. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. We're starting to see people talk a lot more about the meta layer on data. Like we, we had this adage back in Premiere for years, like, why do we have to keep moving data? <laughs> is there a way for us to keep data where it is and just start tagging it in a way that becomes a bit more intelligent in terms of how we pull and think about it? And it's a really hard, as you know, technical problem. And we haven't seen many people pull it off. You've made a brilliant statement there. So let's highlight that for a second. There are those who would say, you know, we need a giant centralized database in the basement of the White House. You know, one giant infrastructure to serve all purposes. I do not believe that's going to be true. I believe it's going to be highly distributed, highly federated. And in fact, beyond that, it may be knowledge graph based as opposed to individual patient based. For example, you know, Mayo has 10 million patients and for COVID, related analytics, we've published lots of papers like, if you lose your sense of taste or smell, you are actually 27 times relative risk of having COVID versus not, right? Fever, cough, one and a half, but loss of right. taste and smell. So what if the knowledge graph just simply said, lose taste and smell, okay. You know, that could be very highly distributed. 
completely, completely agree. And, you know, evidently Larry Ellison does not agree because his statements over the last couple of weeks still still believes that the big repository should be the basement. <laughs> yeah, and of course, I read that press release exactly with the attitude that you did, which is, you know, I've seen this story before. Not sure that that's the right approach for 2022. Yeah, it was a good headline grabber. We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. But let's finish where we kind of started, which is back to government regulations. And like when I think about AI and ML, my favorite picture still, and I always use this, is you know we're talking about inherent bias within you know humans have to model these things, so there's inherent bias in all humans. But I love the Chihuahua and blueberry muffin picture on modeling. Because you look at that, you're like, wow, that's really that's a perfect graphic to grasp the, the inherent bias potentially into any, any model, let alone a healthcare model. And so like, I can't think of a better person, frankly, than you to think about this problem, given your experience, which is what railroad tracks or guardrails are we going to need as this stuff starts really getting into every aspect of what we do around healthcare to handle the bias, to handle some of the regulatory issues that we think will come to pass and and hopefully get in front of it, not behind it. Yeah. And so the analogy that I have used before is if you buy a can of soup, you look at the can of soup and you say, oh, 2000 milligrams of sodium, 50 grams of saturated fat, 510 calories a serving. And you decide if that's the soup you want or not. I hope not. But, but you know, you decide. <laughs> we are going to need a set of standard metrics around every model's performance that say, oh, this is its AUC for all comers. This is its AUC for Bostonians that are five foot 11 and run venture capital firms. You know, I, I made that up, of course. But I mean, point being, right on, right on. My point being is that that transparency of a label, the metadata, is the thing that really we need to specify as a country. And so, as you know, Keith, I have no conflicts of interest. I uh, do not endorse any product or service, but a whole lot of folk are coming together to try to create that nutrition label for free so that everyone can use it. And therefore every product or service provided using ML will have a nutrition label on it. And then you decide if it's right for you. I think you're so spot on. What's fascinating to me is I know you talk about this a lot, but in all the circles that I sit in, this is not talked about enough. My only feeling is that it's still too early. But you know, whether it's Mickey at ONC or the next generation of Mickey at ONC or some other government agency, FDA, whatever, like this has to be front and center for the agenda for the better part of the next decade. And there's no question. Secretary Becerra recognizes this. And you know, not surprising, I think Mickey will end up being the person who coordinates this kind of stuff across yeah. all government agencies. And that's why I look at my career as a series of seven or eight discrete periods of achievement where it's like, oh, we standardized vocabularies. That was great for that period. Oh, we moved to APIs. Oh, that was great for that. The next period will be about creating the guidelines and the guardrails and the transparency for machine learning and healthcare and using it ubiquitously across the world. Well, that is a perfect ending <laughs> to a great discussion uh, that we probably could go on for another half hour or so. But 
John, I can't thank you enough for being a friend and I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking about this subject because I think you're right at the, the base of this in terms of this stuff starting to take off what you're talking about, but thanks again. Well, hey, and thanks for having me. And remember, as I said, 30 years of just working to mentor those who will replace me. That's the plan. <laughs> awesome. Have a good day. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. You can find Keith Figlioli on Twitter and on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. I'm Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Join us next time. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you.